My agent called, he said he got some interest in my script I'm glad I didn't tell him that I never finished it I got my cast of characters and outline for the plot I even got a famous classic case of writer's block Get it out of my head 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 Get it out of your head And onto the page Get it out of your head And onto the page Get it out of your head And onto the page Get it out of your head And onto the page Welcome to On the Page. This is the podcast that answers all of your questions about the craft and business of screenwriting. My name is Pilar Alessandra, and I'm the instructor and script consultant here at On the Page. Joining me as podcast producer is Ryan Buds. Hello, Ryan. How you doing, Pilar? Good. I have no time to talk to you. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I have no time for small talk. I think I said too much already. We have... We got a rock star on the show. This is a big one. <laughs> yes. Yes. Oh, I'm so excited. Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and contain myself. I have to be cool. All right. Terry Rossio. Terry Rossio is an Oscar-nominated screenwriter. Um, he's written some of the most successful American films of the past 25 years, including Aladdin, Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl, and Shrek. And, oh, it goes on and on and on. Uh, the Mask of Zorro, um, Small Soldiers. Um, gosh, uh, oh, just... It's so much. Uh, deja vu. Um, Lone Ranger. Um, you want to add? Want to add to that, Terry? Anything else? It just keeps going. Um, well, I think you covered the uh, the major hits. So <laughs> that's uh, that's a, a a good thing. Aladdin, Pirates of the Caribbean, and Shrek. My God! So I'm so happy to have you here. Um, just so that you guys know. Okay, because uh, you're all aspiring screenwriters and filmmakers out there. He also has a website um, that is called Wordplay, and it's wordplay.com, right? Yes. Well, it's actually wordplayer.com. There's wordplayer. an E-R at the end. Uh, some other, uh, like Norwegian bookstore or something, got wordplay.com, and we've been we've been ready to pounce on it as soon as it becomes available for like the last 20 years, but it just hasn't happened. Good luck. And for, for the low price of $20,000, it can be yours. <laughs> so <laughs> wordplayer.com. And on that site, you actually give free advice to screenwriters. Your articles are incredible. And if you're not going to that, you have to immediately go on to wordplayer.com as soon as you leave this podcast. But listen to the podcast first because we've got all kinds of things to ask Terry. And Terry, again, thank you so much for being here. It's, uh, it's exciting. I'm a big fan of the podcast. And now I have to try to live up to uh, some of the great podcasts in the past. I'll do my best. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to just jump right in because I want to talk about your take on writing story. You know, especially considering all of your hits, so many of them have been adaptations of uh, existing properties, even an adaptation of a Disney ride. So where do you begin when you're adapting existing material? Um. Uh, I often think about um, existing material becomes a movie because it has a fan base. Uh, so there's something about that material that is sort of the DNA of it that you have to identify and protect. And I kind of feel like first you make the fans happy. Now that doesn't mean you, mean, you, know, you can't be a slave to it. It has to find form and it, it has to find itself and express itself in the, the new form that you're doing. But um, that DNA 
is what's what's really Im- really really important. Um, I like to to think that uh, you identify that and you protect that. I mean, that as a first step. So even with Par- Pirates of the Caribbean, you know, you, you're watching that, and oh, there's there's characters that we see on the ride, or um, you know, there's. Um, there are just certain props that you even see on the ride that that got integrated into the story in a way that actually made sense for the story. It's it's fairly amazing. Quite often, when we got stuck, we um, <clears throat> basically we went right back to the ride and, and ended up finding some sort of solution. Pirates was interesting because all films are sort of a theory of a film before they become a film. And what's a little scary is that each theory is its own theory. You can't go based on previous theories. And with pirates, we knew at the time that the pirate film had fallen out of favor. There was something a little goofy about the peg leg and the parrot and, and, and all of that. But there was also something great about it. With the ride, uh, the ride begins with the uh, that sort of talking skull uh, intonation, you have seen the cursed treasure. And that led to the theory that we were going to try to express with that screenplay, which was what if you took gothic horror and a lot of Tales of the Sea and Tales of the Ocean and everything are actually uh, also these these horror tales or, or, or terror type tales. What if we took uh, that supernatural element and had that be the thing that led us into this story? So in other words, once you, once you buy into sword fight and skeletons and ghosts and this cursed treasure, um, then we felt that the, uh, the pirate tropes that we all kind of want to see and enjoy as well would, uh, would actually come along. Um, in other words, we weren't making a pirate film. We were making a ghost story. And it was a theory. It worked. Now, what about um, with something like Shrek? You talk about, you know, starting from it's what's responding to the fans. Well, Shrek is has it's a very basic story. It doesn't where you guys took it was in a really big, slightly more grown up direction. So what was kept from that original source material? Well, again, actually, yes, uh, Shrek was in addition also um, a theory of a movie. At the time, there was a very popular uh, literary genre which was um, uh, not uh, high fantasy or not uh, parodies of fantasy, but um, what I I think would be described as comic fantasy. The comic fantasy stories were the Terry Pratchett series or also the Pierce Anthony Xanth series. They always showed up on the top of the uh, bestseller lists. And in a comic fantasy, you play it straight as an adventure fantasy with one exception, which is that the characters in the fantasy are aware that they're in a fantasy story. It's a very particular, uh, very particular genre and had had huge success in the literary world, never been done in films. Parodies had been done or... I, mean, I shouldn't say never. The closest, closest one that had actually been done before was uh, A Princess Bride, mm-hmm. which also falls into that same category. But it hadn't been done in, um, in animation. So with uh, Shrek, we said, well, because the original 
I'm going to say William Steig, but I'm not sure if it's William. I think it's Steig. Steig, yeah. Uh, the original uh, children's book. He had done a an upended uh, version uh, of a classic adventure tale where the, instead of the orgu being the uh, villain, the ogre was the hero, and and went from there. So we saw it as an opportunity to. Um, express this genre that hadn't been done before uh, in, in animation and make all of the decisions in line with that idea. So you take all of the conventions, you make the characters aware of them, and, and go from there. But there's a lot in that children's book that actually uh, directly, uh, as simple as it, as it is, or as straightforward as it is, directly uh, informed our decisions on the film. I, I, I think I've seen... Shrek like 20 times because <laughs> you know being a parent you know it was it was that one movie that um, my kids loved and I loved too so that we could watch it over and over again mm-hmm. you know sometimes your kids love stuff that you don't you don't really want to watch over and over and you have to and, and all the stuff that I've worked on I, I and a lot of it's um, the so called family fair stuff uh, I take it very seriously, the danger that some poor beleaguered parent somewhere might have to be watching it for the 40th time. And so you do try to, um, you know, put some depth, depth to it. Um, if you're a fan of Shrek, it sounds like you are. Yes. Uh, I'll let you in on a little design secret on how that, that film worked. Um, due to uh, budget constraints, we really were limited in the number of characters that we were allowed to even create. So it uh, really has four four main characters, and one of the ways to design um, a film is to polarize the thematic um, positions, uh, or the, to take whatever the, the sort of thematic argument of the film is and distribute them amongst the different characters in different ways. That way, when the characters come together they don't get along <laughs> or they have something to talk about. So, for example, Shrek um, is a character who he thinks he's just fine. He has no problem with himself. He's actually quite pleased with himself, no matter how gross and disgusting he might be. It's the world that doesn't accept him. Ogres are not accepted by that world. And his response to that is to say... Um, well, then I don't need the world. This is an inappropriate emotional response, but it, it, it makes sense. The Fiona character is the opposite of Shrek. She is fine, but doesn't think so. She re- and, and the world also doesn't accept her similar to Shrek. But opposite of Shrek, she endorses the world's um, uh, rejection of her, validates it, and then tries to change herself when really she doesn't. You can actually see how that's by design, just the opposite of Shrek. So they're not necessarily going to get along. Donkey is legitimately annoying. <laughs> and, and, and yet he, uh, and the world rejects, rejects him. Uh, and like Fiona, he, uh, and he should change, but decides not to, um, or refuses to. Uh, and like, but like Fiona seeks the approval of the world, and the, the Farquaad character, being the villain, is also similar to Donkey. He's not okay, but different than Shrek, who rejects the world, Farquaad actually um, decides to change the entire, entire world to, ref, to, to where it becomes a world where he will be accepted, similar to Fiona. 
And that was by design. We took that issue, we divided it amongst the characters, and then you tell the story and let it play. That is, now, do you think that that is a good place for any writer to start when they're, when they're engineering, uh, whether it's an original script or an adaptation? Well, no. Um, in the sense that, or yes. Um, in the sense that, you know, each individual story has its own DNA. And yes, you can use that technique of taking the thematic argument and and uh, distributing distributing it amongst the characters, um, it might work. It might not. But it's a, it's a it's a way in. It's a way in. I think of it like a you know when you're trying to design a story, all the you know the, the stories either work or they don't, or you struggle with them or whatever. And then if you're struggling, you can have these theory, you know theories of stories. They're like keys. You pick up one, you put it in the lock, you turn it. If it doesn't work, you throw it away and pick up another key. Um, it's really hard to say that any... And maybe while you're doing that, the solution hits you from some other direction. Like It's just... You know, having written an entire website about theories of story, mm-hmm. I also just usually advise people to say, read it, think about it, distract yourself with it, and then just toss it aside and, and do whatever works. Yeah, I would, I would urge people on the WordPlayer site to go to uh, the article called Plot Devices. You cover so many of them in that. And there are so many sort of different ways in for finding story. Um, and I like the fact that you're like, we got this and we got that. Um, as far as, you know, as far as your own way of breaking story, so I would assume um, that since you're sort of open to different techniques when it comes to, to figuring out your characters and things, there's different approaches you have to breaking story per project. But is there any sort of one place that you tend to start that you could bestow upon our listeners? This is Terry Rossio's way in when he starts a, a project. Yeah, it's it's tough because it can, it can be different. Um, I, I did a an online interview, uh, a written interview. I think somebody labeled it Terry Rossio's extreme interview <laughs> and, and where I just kind of went off on endlessly all of these different, uh, um, ideas and, and techniques and the things that you think about. And it, and it went on for a couple of pages. Um, but, um, one thing that does come to mind that, I'll highlight because it's different than what I commonly hear about, maybe even a couple things. Um, the first and foremost, yeah, people talk about oh, character or or plot or even setting or you know how where you know what's important for your different ideas and such. And I maintain that the key first initial element is uh, something I call interest. Um, interest is to me the coin of the realm you know whether it's the concept whether it's the characters the characters in their situations the first thing that you need to generate with your story is interest um that's what draws me to one concept versus another one character versus another one setting or one one situation versus another unless you initially generate interest and then maintain interest throughout the tale you can't do anything. But with interest, you can make people laugh or cry or 
wonder or be intrigued or, um, you know, interest causes people to lean into the story and start to look and engage and be involved. And lack of interest can't recover from that. You know, you can't really you can't really do much much from there. Um, I guess the other thing I would say is that I don't know that people actually do break story, or I don't usually think in terms of breaking story. I think in terms of identifying that DNA that is essential to that particular tale and sort of unpacking it and seeing what makes it it, so to speak. And then what guides me through that process is... I can either call it interest or the cool factor. So it's just simply like, oh, this is a neat setting. This is a neat character. What's cool about it? Okay, and then if they got into that other situation or if this happened, what would be cool about that or what, what is of interest about that? And it's an exploration where you're sort of always just ruthlessly asking yourself, what is the most interesting thing or what is the most, um, what's the coolest thing you know, uh, and being really kind of ruthless about that. I, mean, I noticed, I mean, one thing I love about your writing is it really does feel like it's sequences of stories, that every sequence of scenes feels like, oh, we've completed this, this stage of the story. You know, there's a sort of a beginning, middle, and end, it feels like. It feels very rich. Um, when you're talking about what you're interested in, what's cool, um, does that help propel you to the next sequence of story? What's the coolest thing that would happen now or the most cool, the coolest complication? Well, what comes to mind there is also um, an instinct for what I would, what I term, I, th- I think in my own mind um, of the word filmic. Filmic to me is, again, underused in terms of importance as to designing anything or talking about anything or making those decisions as to which direction to pursue or not. Um, What is filmic and what do we mean by filmic? Because ultimately, there are great stories, but they're not great, that wouldn't necessarily make great films. And then there are story decisions that are actually filmic and they actually can be filmed and they can be elevated through film. And so I'm much more interested in, I'm much more drawn to a story that promises many opportunities to be filmic. And of course, well, okay, what is filmic? It's like, um, it's not just spectacle and it's not just action scenes or, or, or things like that. It's, it's, Noticing that a story might have a seduction sequence in it. Well, seduction scenes are just naturally filmic. Um, for that matter, people playing poker is naturally filmic. Some things work on film. Courtroom scenes always work on films. Training sequences. Um, you know, you can make a list of uh, of different type of character relationships and different different types of scenes. You know, uh, a, a con artist scene is always filmic. It's almost like they almost never fail. You almost can't really mess them up. So, yeah, I would just I would say that um, I'm guided by that sense of are there performance moments for actors? Are there ongoing 
evolving character relationships that you can point a camera at and capture on film. One one thing I noticed is things that aren't naturally filmic, like somebody giving backstory in a monologue, you make filmic, like in Pirates of the Caribbean, there's an exchange between Jack and the Orlando Bloom character where um, it's, you know, who is my father? Uh, Answer this question for me. Um, I'm not going to tell you everything right now, but we need to make a deal. I need you on the ship. And in order to to have this monologue and exchange, um, the mast, I believe, he he makes it hit the Orlando Bloom character so that he is actually clinging onto a mast for his dear life. And they're having this conversation that way. And what, to me, would have been the you know traditional like okay we're moving into the story and we've got to get this information out and I'm not going to tell you the full secret yet but we will make this deal could have been so boring but it was really entertaining because he's hanging from this mast you know and he might plunge into the ocean unless he gets him back on board and it was just that one piece of business and I thought oh that's really fun so so if it's not naturally filmic do you make it filmic in that way well that particular topic is uh, the topic of uh, exposition, mm-hmm. let's say, which I feel very passionate about. And uh, before we, we started the podcast, I asked you if I could swear. Oh. And, uh, which and word is it going to use? I, I'm not going to use the word. I'm so excited. I'm not, I'm not going to use the swear word that I planned to use because I was told I couldn't. But um, when I, uh, I sometimes do presentations uh, at the Austin Film Festival. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is just the greatest film festival to go to. Just it's it's like Christmas for screenwriters. Um, and uh, I stand up in front of everybody and I say, "Screw exposition," <laughs> and uh, which uh, usually gets uh, a lot of approval. But I really believe it. The the more that I have worked um, on films, the more I have been. I have come to believe that. You don't need any exposition ever in a movie, ever. It's not required and, in fact, is usually a problem. Uh, and you just cut it. You just actually don't need it. Um, so I know that's shocking and, and, and radical, but let me explain. No, I'm, I'm with you. Um, you know, first off, um, the <laughs> I, feel so, I feel so strongly about this. I just want to, like, say everything all at once. But... Um, Many times, well, let's start with this. Exposition is, by its nature, something that um, makes people uh, move backwards from the screen, let's say. They sort of pull back. Uh, because it's a little bit like a lecture, or you're being sort of pounded with information, and you'll accept it, but you'll kind of like, um, am I supposed to remember this or whatever? Like it's just, it's not a, 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 a not that lean in thing that you're actually hoping for in a film. On the other hand, withholding information, if you actually sort of whisper, can't quite. Like people start to like lean forward into it and say, "What is you know, what is that about?" Mm-hmm. You know, withholding is the real technique of filmmaking, holding back and making the audience curious. It was something that uh, the director, John McTiernan, um, taught us at, at way back, uh, where he said, um, if the audience is answering questions and you're answering their questions that they want answered, mm-hmm. it's not exposition. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also, if the audience is, I, I, I really feel like 
you know, think of the great films, like watch The Godfather. We're just observing. We're, we're voyeurs, and we're watching these scenes, and those scenes raise questions, and then the questions get answered. There's not, any, there's not exposition. You don't, actually, um, you don't actually need that. What happens is the process of filmmaking involves writing a screenplay, and it involves um, gathering together all of these various artists and, and uh, uh, professionals to make the film. And usually that involves producers, directors, studio executives, and all of that. Everybody along that process is trying to understand the movie, and the writer is trying to convey the movie to people. And part of that process is people going, people saying, I don't get this, I don't understand that, this isn't clear, that isn't clear. And if you tell them, it's not supposed to be clear at that point, it doesn't really fly, because that, that's part of the process by which people are trying to all collectively get the movie so that the movie can be made. But by the time you get to the, to the actual uh, film, it's amazing how much the process just becomes, okay, we don't need that, we can pull that out, that happened, we, we don't care about that, we understand that with a look, we don't need the speech, whatever. Like, and understanding that that process, yes, you may have to have some exposition in your screenplay for the people who are making the film, but the audience will be much more pleased if they are intrigued and then they have answers that they overhear. So in the scene that you mentioned, at that point, there's enough curiosity and there's enough uh, confrontation going on and there's a need for those characters to know information from each other while we observe. There's certainly nothing there that's just simply being spoken for the audience's understanding. That's always the worst. Yeah. And then, on top of it, to make it even more interesting, you kept, you know, you created a set piece that worked for the, the script and for the genre. And that has, and again, I love talking about uh, technique. Uh, it, it's 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 fun because it's what I love so much. Um, that's what I call situation-based writing. I had a friend of mine who wrote novels and uh, asked me about writing a screenplay and showed me his script. And uh, and I just went back to him and I said, "Hey, you know, you're a great writer." You're, used, you're more used to writing novels than writing screenplays. Here's my rule for you. You are not allowed to write a scene, not one, that isn't a situation, where the situation isn't clear uh, from the beginning of the scene and, and the characters aren't in a sort of situational dilemma. So you're not allowed to write um, a couple of people in a car driving down the road, headed someplace, and, and talking. It's not a situation. You are allowed to write, the car's broken down, there's a flat tire, they don't know if they're going to get there in time, and they're arguing about the very same topic. You have to have a situation in, in every single scene, because that creates interest, like going back to that, and it's only through, you know, you don't want people flipping the pages and looking for something interesting. Situation... Uh, character dilemma, those are the things that keep interest focused. And going back to exposition for a second and the fact that you said people read a script and they're always saying, this isn't clear, this isn't clear, this isn't clear, and, and, and the response being, it's not supposed to be yet, right? But that said, you still got all those people. You've worked within the studio system for years. Sometimes the notes work. Sometimes they don't. Clearly, you've Manage them really well to the point where you take the note 
and you also deliver a great product. How are you doing that? You got any... Uh... <laughs> well, first off, nothing could be further from the truth. Oh, okay. Um, the, the screenplays that I've written, in many cases, are vastly superior to the films that were made. Um, and yeah, that sounds like I'm all full of myself. But um, I think, objectively, for the most part, that's true. So a lot of films represent the failure of the writers to uh, maintain the vision that was what was on the page. It's a fairly common complaint. I don't think I'm breaking any any new ground there. Um, having said that, yeah, there are a huge. Oh my God, that could fill a book in terms of the te- <laughs> the techniques. I know of one writer who secretly got a copy of the rough cut of the film and in order to make his points uh, re-edited the movie and secretly presented it to the producers to um, to get the final version of the film more toward what it was supposed to be. Um, I, I know of one case in uh, one of the films I worked on where I was uh, confronting uh, the producer on things that were going wrong uh, and the producer said, you don't understand. The director is going to do his cut. We are already making our own secret cut. What, we, what we're going to do is before the release date, we're going to submit our cut, and his cut won't matter. You know, there, there are fights that go on creatively. There are techniques, and there are more genteel ones. There's, you know, you can... You know, you get your notes and you, you know, divide them up into what can I do, what can I do, and you know what I'm going to argue and and what I'm not. Or I can do a version of this, or I can do this note and I can solve it this way, and uh, and make it seem as though I addressed it, um, but not really. But funny you should bring up notes, okay? Because that was one of the uh, one of the things I really. Uh, wanted to uh, talk about because it's a, a kind of a new idea for me today, and I think I can revolutionize the entire film business in the next three minutes. Awesome. Okay. All right. You heard it here first on on the page. Doesn't that sound great? I like that because I really feel now maybe I'm building it up too much, but I really feel like this this sort of hit me like a thunderbolt, and uh, and, and I think it's it's very very true. Uh, notes notes are a big issue. Uh, Shane Black said once that, you know, getting notes is, you know, reading notes is like taking a knife and just digging it into his abdomen and, and, and ripping it around. That they can be so, so incredibly painful. And what I realized uh, is this. There's a problem with the word notes. We all kind of know what notes is supposed to be. We know what notes is supposed to mean. The word notes is we have a story, we've tried our best, and we maybe could do a better version of this, or we could maybe make that a little bit more clear, or this is a little interesting and we could actually follow up on it more, that, that sort of thing. You know, and a reaction from people on the thing that you've created and an intent by all parties to try to improve it. The problem is some notes aren't exactly notes. They're what I want to call speculations. Now, usually when I talk to another writer on this, they go, ah, yeah, that's it. Exactly. (laughs) 
there is a difference between notes and speculations. And the big problem comes, and I, and I actually want to start to introduce this term okay. and introduce this, this concept because it would solve so much. The problem comes when you're given notes, but they're really speculations. This is what is devastating because instead of a note on the story that you're telling, you have a speculation on instead what the film could be. Mm-hmm. It's speculating about a different story, a different character, or a different whatever, right? And this causes a lot of stress because you already have a story and now somebody's speculating about something else. But here's the great thing. There's nothing wrong with speculations. If you turned in a screenplay and they said, okay, we're going to have some notes, and you said, are they notes or are they speculations? And if they came back and said, well, it turns out we have some speculations... That'd be fine, because what they're basically saying is, we don't quite like this, this isn't really working for us, For us, let's all step back and speculate on a new movie. If you want to do that, that's fine, let's all get together and speculate, we all know what's happening, we're moving backwards to redefining the story that we're telling, and then after we give that a try, we can get some notes to make it better. Now, what do you think? That makes sense to me, because, because a good note addresses the intention of the page yes. right there yes. and says, um, I see the intention. Are you meeting that intention? Yes. And if you're not meeting that intention, let's figure out how to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, for what you have, the story you have, the characters you have, that's a note. Mm-hmm. And like you said, speculation is, but what if we didn't have this plot point at all? Or what if we didn't have this character? Or what if this character was two characters? Or uh, yeah, yeah. I, I think that that makes a lot of if, sense. If we all had that common language, it would just, it would, um, uh, everybody would be happier. <coughs> I think, I, you know, this reminds me of like uh, in elementary school, our kids are instructed, now is it a question or is it a comment when they raise their hand? <laughs> yes. It's a little bit like that, you yes. know, is this notes or is this speculation? Well, there's this thing um, that um, adapted from the world of physics, but it's called phase space. Phase space is... Uh, it has to do with time and space and moving forward and the speed of light and all of that. But it basically says that there are some things that are within your space space and some things that are just fall outside of it. And when we work on movies, we want the phase space to narrow. At the beginning, it could be anything. It could be a comedy. It could be a drama. It could be a historical epic, uh, whatever. And then you make choices. You narrow the phase space. Well, now we know we're making a comedy. Well, is it... Uh, R-rated or not, or is it a, a, a character who's a, a bouncer in a club who does whatever, right? Like, and you narrow it down to the actual scenes, and then the scenes narrow down to actual lines of dialogue, and then the lines of dialogue are cast a certain way with a certain actor, and they're set a certain way. You're always narrowing the phase space down to the fin- finality of the film. Well, speculations go the opposite way, and we all kind of feel that tension that comes from what if it's not a comedy about a bouncer who works at a strip club or whatever? What if it's a a story of an IRS agent? And you go, ah, I, mean, <laughs> I, I we don't have, we don't have a language for it, but it's like you're 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 now widening the you're speculating, and we're going to widen back out to a wider phase space and remake those decisions, and that invokes. Um, what I call time risk, actually. My, the, the new column that's coming out in the next couple of, of uh, months or weeks, hopefully, uh, at Wordplay is uh, I ended up writing this 48-page column. It just kept getting bigger and bigger oh, wow. about the 
um, the lay of the land of Hollywood and how the power structure of Hollywood can be understood by invoking an analysis of time risk. And time risk is basically the amount of time that each person has to spend attempting to make a film versus the amount of time one spends actually making films. Mm. And the more time you spend making films as opposed to trying to get films made, the more power you end up having. And the writer, unfortunately, is on the wrong end of that time risk curve because we spend a lot of our time trying to get films made, whereas actors go from film to film. Directors, if you have a hit film, you probably go right to another hit film, which isn't necessarily the, you know, true for writers. Um, producers work on many things at once, and so they have a way to go from film to film to film as, as well. So for, for the writer... Whenever you're, you face so much time risk to begin with that when you get notes that just widen the movie back out, you just feel the weight of all that time risk coming back at you, and that's mm-hmm. hard. And, and, you know, just bottom line, too, your hourly rate <laughs> gets smaller and smaller as, as we widen this out. Yep. Um, is there, uh, out of the movies that you've written, um, what movie or movies do you feel was in keeping with your original vision that, that you felt like, oh, this, is, this, is, this meets my intentions. Strangely enough, every film that bombed um, was, uh, there was a point where, I mean, this again, it sounds like I'm so full of myself, but as it turns out, if the film kept to the theory of the film that we began with, mm-hmm. it was a hit. Mm-hmm. Whenever anybody came along and changed it radically, it turned out to be uh, underperforming to a great degree, let's say. Um, now, that could just be chance, or there could be something to that, or it could just be that I'm, you know, uh, hindsight and, and all of that. Um, but I'll take The Lone Ranger as an example, because that was a spectacular failure. Um, the original intent of The Lone Ranger, and it goes back to that idea of the DNA, the DNA of The Lone Ranger is a heroic... Um, Texas Ranger who's very good at what he does um, is forced through circumstance there's, a, there's an ambush, his brother's killed etc. and people think that he's killed he's forced through circumstances to actually go outside the law um, and wear a mask uh, in, order, in, a, in order to uphold the law and Anybody who loves the Lone Ranger, that's what they want to see. That's the DNA of the story, and that's what we started off saying, this is what the film has to be. Um, I had a discussion with the director who, who was brought on board who said, uh, we think the Lone Ranger should be a fop from the East Coast who can't shoot straight, um, who then learns to shoot straight or whatever. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> And in the course of the story, he actually has that character dragged through horse manure and such. Now, that's at the point where I, you know, had a debate and couldn't reconcile it and parted ways. And so another writer was brought on, they rewrote the script, they did the FOP version, and it's not something that... I, I could support the theory of that movie was violated and the new theory that was brought in I thought was poor and 
audiences sniffed it out. And I mean, there might be a million reasons why the film didn't work, but when you violate the theory of the film, certainly you have much less of a chance for it to work, I think. What about, what about a favorite? A favorite film? Um, well, the favorite films all have a commonality to them as well, and that is that large groups of people were allowed to do their best work. Um, so, um, you know, I could, I could pick any number of, of them. Uh, if, I, if I take the film Aladdin, for example... Um, Oh my God! The directors got to direct, the actors got to act, the storyboard people got to do their best work in terms of storyboard, the music, uh, everything about it, the the lyrics. Um, oh, uh, a, uh, Ryan is holding up his copy. Um, his, it looks like a steel book copy. It's the Diamond Edition. The, the Diamond Edition of Aladdin, yeah. which will. Oh, I, I sense a sharpie nearby. I yes. might have brought a sharpie okay, too. Okay, there you I, go. I, I might, might be uh, begging for Terry's autograph at the end of this. Here's the, here's the very important thing that I learned early on, and I learned it on that film. Um, I I have a little bit of talent, and I'm going to hold my 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 thumb and my. F- my forefinger just, you know, an inch apart. Um, I don't have enough talent to make that film. There were a lot of people on that film, other writers, directors, the whole group. And collectively, you layer all that talent together. But we don't collectively have the ability to make that film, and yet that film got made. So the way it works is every day you go into work, you all have the amount of talent that you're given and that you can manifest great you do your best every day you layer that talent over and over again in this sense fear is your friend and a lack of confidence is how you proceed the biggest danger that i've seen is people thinking that their thing is okay or that it's done or that it's finished instead of being incredibly scared that it's not good enough or incredibly worried that it doesn't work or or panicked, or, or even in a good sense, just um, having a target that's out of reach. The target on, on the best films are always out of reach. The people involved are always, often, you think you're dealing with a train wreck. We thought we had a train wreck with Aladdin because it was following Beauty and the Beast, which had just been nominated for Best Picture. And Aladdin, you know, had plot holes you could drive a truck through, and and Little Mermaid was, of course, <coughs> and Little Mermaid was, of course, this just amazing film that we were all trying to live up to. So, most of the films that turned out to be amazing, like Shrek, is another example. Shrek took five years. Shrek took uh, eight hundred pages of screenplay. Shrek outlived, I think, five directors and seven producers, and was nearly canceled three times. And we lost the the services of our lead actor who passed away halfway through. Um, like, the films that turn out to seem like these great things, um, there are desperate people who are desperately reapplying what talent they have over and over again to, to get them there. And then, and then you just run out of time and you have to release it. Now, getting back to Aladdin and dialogue... Um, so, you know, some of the things that I remember the most about Aladdin is just, you know, this, this unique take on the genie and, you know, his 
smart, funny lines. Um, of course, you have Robin Williams, who is voicing the, the character. So um, this actually is a question that came from my husband this morning. Because ask him what came first, Robin Williams or the voice? And I'm like, the voice came first, dude. It's, we're talking to a writer here. He wrote those lines. And he's like, I don't know. I think Robin Williams added a lot to it. So I just wanted to know, uh, dialogue-wise, how much of the DNA of those original lines is is on the page yeah there's a lot to that um the it turns out interestingly there was a a lawsuit robin williams was uh upset that disney had violated his contract and used his image um to be um uh promotional when disney had agreed not to it was a serious violation on the part of disney and robin williams was in the right Uh, i think they later sent him a picasso in, in form of apology um, That's a night, a real Picasso. A real Picasso, yeah. And, you know, uh, I'm kind of mad at them too. Uh, <laughs> hey, okay. And uh, this is just one of those little oddities of film history. And uh, in terms of when the battle was going on, they had these very serious lawyers go through and determined that uh, I think uh, 89% of his dialogue was written and 11% was improvised. So it's very, very weird that I actually have an answer to that, and I can actually give it an actual percentage. But I must quickly follow that up and say, the part that gets overlooked, because people focus on, oh, was that actual line of dialogue written or not? And you can write in the form of Robin Williams. It's actually not that that tough. Um, And especially when you're writing so much that you then only keep the parts that, that, that really play. The thing that gets overlooked that Robin Williams did was he improvised stylings and he improvised emotion and he improvised, he would go away from something, but then come back and be the heart and soul of that movie. The emotional moments are where Robin Williams was a superstar on that film. He, that his emotion, the emotional heart of, of Robin Williams and, and being the genie and being trapped and all of that and trying to help and everything, he brought a lot of that. And, and it upsets me because he doesn't get enough credit for that. His performance, his performance moments were far more important than just you know throwing out some some occasional uh, sort of crazy line. And the character who improvised a lot, most of his performance was Gilbert Gottfried. Oh, you know, so it's like. Um, I think Robin, you know, I think Gilbert should get more uh, credit for his improvisational skills, and Robin should get more, much more credit than he gets for his acting skills. Robin Williams is an amazing actor because he could keep the emotional heart of a scene while doing all that other stuff. And he's also interpreting what's on the page. So there you go. You know, this is all starts with you. Well, and then what's on the page, and then also you know he like makes a little uh, a joke, and then the uh, the joke is embellished by the. Uh, the animator, and then also by the uh, um, somebody doing uh, the score or the little compositional theme of, of something that comes in. So, it, uh, the greatest thing about filmmaking is just your the teamwork that's involved. It's it's just the best. So we've talked about about story, and we've talked about the the theory of the story. Um, what is uh, when you're writing something, I mean, I, I love I love the fact that all of your your screenplays seem to have a very specific stamp. They have a specific personality. They're true to the genre. You can't just go, oh, that's a Terry Rossio movie. They they all seem unique in and of themselves. So then we've got the dialogue. So um, 
keeping your characters within the genre that they're in and also giving them specific voices. Uh, do you have any tips for people as far as you know, uh, making your voices specific? Uh, casting goes a long way um, toward that. Um, and in terms of, of dialogue tips, I have, a, I, have, yeah, I have a few little kind of radical ideas. Oh, yeah? I, I have, at least I haven't heard them anywhere else. Um, let me see if I can go through. Um, one of them has to do with uh, questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, just working with a bunch of actors over the years, actors hate questions. <laughs> they, hate, they hate questioning. Part of it is, if you put a question mark at the end of a line... Um, a, a lot of really good actors will try to erase that question mark because when you think about it, a question has a single interpretation. You know, it's a question. Like there's only kind of not that many good ways, not that many different ways to ask a question. You're reduced down to asking a question. But a lot of times you can just take that question mark away, turn it into an implied accusatory statement, achieve the same thing, and open up a lot of um, different... Um, uh, opportunities for the actor to have more fun with it. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of actors also feel that being, I don't want to be the question person, you know, like they don't want to be the, in the same way that they don't want to give information. Um, they uh, uh, don't want to be reduced down to that role in a scene. They feel that it, that it's potentially weak. Um, so I actually try to get through scenes. Now, sometimes the question form of something is exactly right. There are no, no absolutes. Um, but I find that that is incredibly helpful to, sometimes to unlock a scene and actually make it really play, is to not allow, especially your lead character, to have to ask several questions in a row. It's actually something we do in class, is, is erase a lot of question mm. marks, mm. because when people come at each other statement versus statement, they're also mm-hmm. coming at each other agenda versus agenda. Yes. And questions and answer imply that people are listening to each mm. other. And they're rarely doing that in in a conversation, whether it's on screen or otherwise. That's a good point. I'm gonna I'm gonna steal that. <laughs> That's a very good point. Yeah. The other thing that I do, um, let's try to go through a couple, um, is reducing syllables down. Huh. So I will take uh, the first draft of of a, of a speech or something. I think. Uh, I think. Uh, there's an example in On Stranger Tides where Jeffrey Rush and Johnny Depp are coming together and one of them says, well, what are you doing here? And the other one says, no, what are you doing here? And the other one says, no, what are you doing here? I was here first. And the other one says, well, I'm here to try to find the silver chalices. What about you? And, and my common technique is to just cut down, cut it down to where it's almost nonsensical and then back up a step. And the final scene became... Um, Johnny Depp sees Jeffrey Rush and says, you. (laughs) And Jeffrey Rush looks back and says, you. (laughs) And then Johnny goes, no, you. Like each one wants ascendancy in the scene. Why are you here? And then the other one says, to kill uh, Blackbeard. And the other one says, you? Silver chalices. And And that's it. And one of the reasons why you do something like that is you realize that with really these really good actors, the, it's a similar with the question mark. The more words 
that you kind of saddle them with, the more defined they're forced to be. But if you just give them one word, everything that's going on with their face and the moment and the interaction and the connection can play because it's free of those distracting words which kind of lock them into a particular thing. Now, at the same time, sometimes you give them a, a, an aria, a speech or something that just, you know, is, is you try to make as eloquent as possible, in which case they indulge in that as well. Again, there's, there's no absolutes. Um, but it is really fun to give them those empty spaces to play with as much as possible. Uh, another quick technique that I think is underused is um, what I ca- would call the importance of sort of the last hanging word of a phrase. So, yeah, it's just a, it's something you just go through and you kind of do um, to kind of clean something up. And it works for description as well. Um, if if you have a choice and you say um, the uh, um, as a descriptive descriptive phrase, uh, uh, the vampire's eyes glowed on the other side of the rain-soaked window, or something. The last thing you imagine in your head is the rain-soaked window, when you can actually say past the rain-soaked window. The vampire's eyes glowed. Oh, nice! And it's a yeah, it's a little wordy or whatever, but but it's worth it to make that change because you're left with the lingering image of the thing that you want to linger throughout the rest of the reader's imagination. Just the the eyes, and also it look at the natural tracking of the camera. Exactly. That's, that's the other really thing. Nice. That's and that's the other thing that you do is you do direct on the page because you're directing the reader's mind's eye and wanted to make it seem like a film in their imagination. They go, oh, this seems like a film already because you've already, you've already done what the camera would do in aligning your words to that. And that can also actually work with dialogue. Sometimes it doesn't quite fit, but... Uh, um, oh my God, a vampire outside the window is not as good as, you know, look, out the window, I think it's a vampire. Like, <laughs> like the vampire is, is, the, is, the, is the key... And quite often, the power position of any line of dialogue is the final word. So you put those two together. This has been... I could keep asking you questions. I could keep holding you hostage in the On the Page studios and asking you questions, but I have to let you go at a certain (laughs) point. I just feel so lucky that you got in touch and that you are here. Thank you so much, Terry. Uh, well, we'll just have to do it again. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Um, if you had to point people in the direction of any of your projects or to look for something that's coming up, what would you have them do? Where do you want the eyes to go? Oh, gosh, future projects. Um, uh, well, you know, I guess there's uh, another pirate film coming out uh, that's uh, in the works. And... Um, uh, Gosh. Uh, other than that, I'm, I'm gonna. I'm just gonna gonna leave it at that. I, I probably have about twenty different irons in the fire right now. Oh man! And um, whether you know, I have this m- marvelous comedy uh, film with um, Mark Webb that is called "Accidentally Yours," and it's like the the most uh, accident-prone man in the world falls in love with a girl with fragile bone disease, and it 
<laughs> wow. And it's, and it's an old fashioned Charlie Chaplin style physical comedy thing set in New York City. But he has to be free to make it. You know, there's another project uh, that I wrote with another writing partner, uh, Jocelyn Stamet, um, with the director Timur Bekmambekov. I'm probably mispronouncing it. Uh, that's called uh, uh, Ivan the Fool. And it may be the best thing I've ever worked on because it's a, a comic fantasy that's based on tarot deck, tarot card deck. Oh, cool. So a comic fantasy with, char- with characters based on the tarot deck is just so cool. Um, but, you know, he's directing Ben-Hur right now. Um, anyway, I could go on, on and on. There's, there's, a, there's a list of things, but, you know, it's, it's uh, um, a changing industry and uh, it's, it's very filmmaker driven and you really need the filmmaker attached um, and have that filmmaker be free and ready to go to get your project to the screen. So you let's know, have our fingers crossed. That's where we didn't go in this particular podcast, but I really would like to have you come back because I know you have things to say about how the craft has changed, how the business has changed. Um, and I think that all that would be so valuable as well. Plus, it's Terry Rossio. This is tip of the iceberg stuff, you guys. So would you come back uh, in a couple months or so? Sure. That's a great tease for next time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, uh, and I want to thank you again for being here. Terry, uh, should, people should just go to uh, WordPlayer, right? If they want to get in touch or, or you know. Yeah, I answer every question on the message boards there. And uh, even my email is there. So I'm so easy to find. Okay, cool. And Ryan? Uh, follow me on Twitter at Ryan Buds, B-U-D-D-S. Awesome. And you guys know to go to onthepage.tv. That is all the promoting I'm going to do because I'm like still so starstruck. I'm just, I'm just sitting here. <laughs> that all. was the quietest I've ever been in a podcast, just wide-eyed listening. <laughs> but, oh my God, this is so much stuff. Yeah, this has been fabulous. <laughs> Thank you again, Terry, for being here. Thank you, Ryan, for producing. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And have a good writing week. 